Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Shank, nurse scientist and healthcare sustainability leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Thompson, associate professor at Emory University and long-term researcher on indoor air quality related to the use of cookstoves, primarily in Guatemala. In our conversation, we explore Dr. Thompson's extensive research career, her perspective on global and environmental health, and we hear about her experience with Fire Drill Friday. Lisa Thompson, welcome to the podcast. I'm so delighted to be able to speak with you today. Hello, good afternoon. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your nursing background. How did you get to be where you are today at Emory University? Well, um, I started at the uh, Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing here in Atlanta, Georgia at Emory uh, in 2017. And um, before that, I was a faculty member in the School of Nursing at the University of California, San Francisco. I was an assistant and associate professor there for about eight years. Prior to that, uh, I was a family nurse practitioner, and I received my bachelor's and master's and FNP from San Francisco State University. And I worked as a family nurse practitioner at La Clinica de la Raza, which is a clinic in Oakland, California, that primarily serves uh, Spanish-speaking patients. I did that for about 10 years, and... Uh, to the course of the work that I was doing there, I became interested in environmental health, and I returned to get my PhD in environmental health sciences from the University of California at Berkeley, and I completed that in 2008. So, so help me connect those dots a little bit. You were working at the clinic in Oakland, and how did you start to get envi- interested in environmental health? Well, um, I worked in a pediatric clinic with primarily Latino, Spanish-speaking, mostly low-income, undocumented and uninsured for the most part. And I was the case manager who took care of families with children with asthma. And as part of my routine, I decided that I, I would visit the homes to see what were their environmental triggers in the homes and, and it really led me to learn where these children in East Oak and Oakland live, go to school. Uh, they mostly lived in industrial areas. They lived by the port of Oakland. They, a lot of their homes were by the freeways because these were the affordable homes. And as renters, they lived in really substandard homes. So I saw carpets that the landlords were not clean. In fact, one time I wrote a letter to a landlord to try to get them to clean the carpet. And the family was pretty concerned that you know, not only would the landlord not clean the carpet, but he might evict them. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that families were dealing with. Uh, And I realized that there's so many environmental triggers, um, mold in the bathrooms, uh, small industries right next to the homes. And so I became really interested in environmental health as a result of my clinical experience and particularly focusing on health disparities in Latino patients. So, I decided to apply to UC Berkeley, which is, I lived in Berkeley at the time, and I got a call from the, my, my future academic advisor, and he said, well, I see that you're interested in working with Spanish-speaking people around air pollution, and you're interested in urban air pollution in the United States, but I have a study that's starting in Guatemala, and we're looking at household air pollution and childhood pneumonia, and I 
kind of scratched my head and I thought, I don't know what that is. I don't know what household air pollution is in that context. And so that's how I kind of fell into the work that I'm, I'm doing today. Interesting. So, so that was um, through environmental health sciences rather than a nursing PhD. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And and it, it was definitely challenging being a nurse in a PhD program with environmental scientists because I, I had such a cl- strong clinical background um, and more of the kind of patient advocacy side of things. And I was with people who are very interested in measuring particles and chemicals. And, and so, but luckily during that period of time, there was a big environmental justice movement that was growing. And so there was kind of a way for me to work my way into environmental health without feeling completely like a science nerd. Well, I was thinking you would have brought so much um, grounding and relevance and real experience to that team that you must have been a really valuable team member. Yes, I I actually do. And I think I did really well in toxicology because I knew a lot about the body before I had to learn about how the chemicals metabolize and stuff like that. So I definitely helped with our study groups and the toxicology class. Um, But yes, I I think I did bring a a very much um, working with study participants and thinking them as people with lives, not just the things we're going the data we're going to collect. And so I think it really did add a lot to my, my perspective on household air pollution, uh, which is basically people who cook over wood stoves or coal stoves and the exposures that they receive when they're building fires and cooking over these fires. And really what, what we're dealing with is not so much the exposure to pollution, but the behavior that leads to the need to cook over these fuels. So nurses are all about behavior and household air pollution is a, is a behavioral issue. Interesting. And, and so that study that you did for your dissertation is what you're, you're currently working on as well, or it's related. You're, you're still studying in Guatemala, right? I, yeah, I've been in Guatemala for the past 16 years as a researcher. I don't live there, but Mm -hmm. I go there um, frequently every month. Um, And the first study that I worked on through UC Berkeley was called the RESPIRE study. And it was a study, a randomized control trial, where half of the households were randomized to receive a chimney stove, where they they would still use their wood fuel for cooking. But instead of cooking over open fires, they would actually have a chimney stove that would vent the smoke outside the home. And um, that study enrolled over 500 homes, and we followed the children until they were a year and a half to look to see if the stove, in a randomized fashion, so that only the stove could be responsible for the infant pneumonia outcome, reduced infant pneumonia. And it it did reduce infant pneumonia by about 22%, but it wasn't statistically significant in a research sense. So... Um, we, we kind of dug into the data, and this was a study. It was published in Lancet in 2011 by my advisor, Kirk Smith. We dug into the data, and we realized that these stoves weren't cleaning the air completely enough. They just didn't w- work in the way they should have. And so we took a really smoky home and made it kind of smoky. Mm-hmm. Um, and we realized that we, uh, and many studies across the world, have realized that 
in these three billion homes that cook over these types of solid fuel stoves, um, and which leads to four million deaths annually from this exposure, primarily from pneumonia, that these stoves that are being put in around the world just don't clean the air well enough. They just can't do it. Or people don't like them and they go back to using their old, old stove. So that led to the current study that I'm doing right now. Um, we've been, we're in our fourth year and this is a pretty massive study. It's called the HAPIN trial, H-A-P-I-N. And it's funded by NIH and Gates Foundation. And this is, again, it's a randomized control trial, but this time instead of a wood stove, we're using a liquefied petroleum gas stove, which is like those little tanks that we use when we barbecue, and you can trade them in and out when they run out. Mm -hmm. um, so we're using these um, stoves and providing free fuel to 3,200 households in India, Guatemala, Peru, and Rwanda. So this is a big study, um, and we're looking at many outcomes. We're looking at childhood pneumonia in the first year of life, low birth weight, preterm birth, stunting, uh, and uh, early childhood development. And the children were looking at outcomes in pregnant women and older adult women. Um, the study is really exciting because it is across many different contexts, many different settings, and it is really driven um, by behavior change interventions and strategies that will really understand why women adopt and sustain the use of the stoves. So there's a lot of behavioral components that as a nurse I find really exciting um, to, to, to really not just do what has been done in the past you know, the engineer experience, you just kind of drop in a good technology and hope it works. This is really like, okay, how, how's this working for you? How can we, how can we modify cooking strategies or, you know, so we're really working more hand in hand with households. Um, and they actually love the stoves. They're very happy with the stoves because not only does it clean the environment, as we, you know, we cook over gas and we don't live in smoke, but it actually cleans their kitchen. The walls aren't black. The clothes don't smell like smoke. Um, and it's fast. So women are finding they have more time to do other things. They don't have to gather wood and, you know, and be exposed to the dangers of gathering wood in rural areas. So it's really actually been pretty life-changing for the household so far, but we haven't yet analyzed the data to see the exposure. So that, that's what I was going to ask. Is there any, are there results yet? Not that you could necessarily share them on a podcast, but <clears throat> to look at the health impacts. Yeah. So we actually um, did, uh, I did a little um, pilot of this study through an NIH funded study I did before I came here to Emory. And we did the same approach where we gave women uh, gas stoves and uh, free gas and we found that the reduction, say if you have like an open fire, you're exposed to about 1,000 micrograms per meter cubed of particulate matter, 2.5, um, with an open fire. So that's, you know, basically like being in a super smoky bar. Uh, and then with these chimney stoves, we brought it down to about 100 micrograms per meter cubed of PM 2.5. So that's, that's a big reduction. And we're finding with the gas stoves, exclusive use over 
our pilot period, which was rather short, we're getting down to about 25 to 30 micrograms per meter cubed, which is what the WHO recommends for, mm -hmm. for health impacts. Um, and in some of the countries like India, they have, and in Guatemala, in fact, where I work, they get the gas stove and they destroy their other stove. Like they just, no. they're, they're done with it. It's mm -hmm. over. So um, that's been exciting mm -hmm. to see. And of course, everyone asks, well, it's, these are little gas canisters that might not be affordable. What's going to happen when the study's over? Um, and that's another important question. You know, we're, we're giving them free fuel. They're using it because it's free. But what happens mm -hmm. when the study ends? And that, that is a very important question that I can't answer right now. No. Well, and also it's, as you say, it's 3 billion homes and you're, you're in the study approaching, what'd you say, 3,000? Right, right. Yeah. So it's a tiny fraction. Yeah. What we would hope, of course, is that this study would find an effect and that uh, countries would then change their policies. Like India basically has a, a countrywide policy to provide gas to poor to people in poor homes through mm -hmm. subsidies. Mm -hmm. um, Peru does, too, to a limited extent. And uh, Rwanda's interested, but Guatemala's like at the bottom of the list. They, the government's not very interested, but yeah. hopefully you'd find something and this would lead to policy change. Do you see anything on the horizon yet or te technologically even that it could be electricity based rather than gas based at some point and therefore run on renewables perhaps? I would love that. I would, I would really love that. Some countries have been able to do that. Um, in uh, actually Ecuador is a really interesting country because um, they had a lot, they have a lot of hydroelectric power. Mm -hmm. And so they were actually able to go from hydroelectric to electricity. Um, they also had a huge gas subsidy. So they were able to quickly transition most people to, to, to gas. The subsidy was so good um, that then they came along and said, now we've got a, electric we're gonna we're gonna switch you from gas to electric, and people kind of didn't like that. <laughs> they, I guess uh -huh. they got used to their gas stoves. But yes, it, you know the question always is, well, what about solar stoves? Those mm -hmm. are great. Um, electric stoves are great. It's it's like we cook. We cook. Are we gonna mm -hmm. use our microwave? Are we gonna use our our heating pot to heat our water for our tea? Are we gonna use our um, pressure cooker, or are we gonna use the stove? You know, we have so many different ways of cooking in, in our, in my kitchen, at least, that maybe it's a combination of things that we have to have for, for people, um, whether it's a solar cooker to pasteurize water or to heat beans, um, to electric hot plate to cook fast meals, coffee, eggs. Um, so that definitely... I think it's the next step. Yeah. Well, for all of us, I mean, you know, the general advice is to electrify <clears throat> and get off of gas in, in our own homes even. And that's that's going to take a long time. Gas has major advantages. Um, right. And so it's not today's problem to solve for your study, you know, certainly, because you're, you're doing such important work to understand these um, health impacts. And also, you know, I really agree with you, the practical adoptable, sustainable actions that are necessary. And, and we need to understand those by study rather than just assume that we understand, you know, the, the um, challenges that people in these different settings are up against.
Right. Exactly. Exactly. I agree. Well, that sounds really interesting. And I did not realize that pneumonia was the driver. I really thought it was respiratory, you know, insufficiency related more to asthma and chronic disease. Well, pneumonia in children, um, you know, for the global burden of disease, which really um, looks at um, early deaths um, from child, so the, the child pneumonia is heavily weighted to the fact that children die very young, and so they lose that full range of lifespan. Um, but then we also have older um, adults with uh, COPD, and then blood pressure and cardiovascular diseases are another big risk factor. I mean, the number one risk factor in the global bird disease is uncontrolled high blood pressure. Hmm. So um, in one thing that our study hopes to do, and the area where I've been really focusing on is low birth weight and preterm birth, these two um, outcomes have not been integrated into the global burden of disease. They're, they're, there's not enough evidence to say that, yes, household air pollution does cause um, low birth weight and it does contribute to preterm birth. And stunting is another huge problem. We just don't have enough studies. So we're hoping that with this study we can uh, show the evidence exists and then that could be part of the global burden and then we might see that there's a shift in... in um, paying attention to, to these early, early child experiences like low birth weight and preterm birth, what that does for their future development. That's quite a, quite a statement, and it, it raises a question that we actually spoke about, I believe, at the Academy meeting this past year, which is the different ways that we, we humans, especially humans in health careers, focus on <clears throat> excuse me, the environmental determinants of health, so we were talking about the social determinants and the environmental determinants, trying to weave them together in a policy statement I think the panel is going to be working on. But but something that I keep coming up against is reflective, I think, of what you just said, that some aspects that you very well know are contributors, significant contributors to disease and early death and disability and disability adjusted life years aren't factored into the way we calculate and think about it. And um, I, I fear that the same thing is uh, upon us with climate impacts. It's, it's, it sorts out into different categories. It might be trauma that's not associated with environment. It might be, um, you know, flooding that's not associated with environment in terms of the ways that we actually look. And I, uh, I'm, I'm troubled by that. And um, what, are, what, what would you say about that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I well, I I guess that um, I think I think I'm thinking more like in terms of epidemiology studies and how you know if we do this and RCT randomized control trial and we eliminate all the other factors that might be associated with low birth weight and preterm birth, there just haven't been enough of these types of studies to actually look at household air pollution and the impact on these outcomes. Um, I think in terms of climate change. I, the big you can't do an RCT on climate change. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're all experiencing it, and what what's the counterfactual? Like, mm -hmm. I think that's the problem is we're we're living in a time of um, arguing over the evidence, and I think as we all know, it's what the, what they're saying is just stop arguing about the evidence and just start looking for the solutions. We can't keep studying this. It, it's happening. It's here, and we're not going to get anywhere if we keep trying to argue about, is it, you know, 
1.9 or 1.1 degrees of increase in temperature. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that is the problem with our, the way we argue about the effects of climate change. So I think that's, I think that's what I mean. I think our, our household air pollution study is pretty straightforward because it is a randomized control trial, but you can't, you can't do that with climate change. So there's always going to be this nebulous area that people say, oh, it's just, it's just a temporary weather problem. It's not, it's going to fix itself in the future. Something is going to happen and it's going to go away. And it's not right. going to go away until we do something. Yes. And that's a, that's a big something, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, yeah, I've been very much more, you know, I think one of the things I wanted to say was when you get so involved in the research world and you're studying your problem and however serious you think your problem is and you get really like nose to the grindstone on a specific problem that, um, and that's what you do when you're an early investigator is you're trying to establish like your territory. But I think I've gotten to the point now where I can take a step back from that problem and look at how household air pollution impacts climate change and what uh, and what is climate change and thinking more in terms of what's happening ha- happening here in my own backyard in the United States and how we're as nurses can respond to it so it's been kind of a a great shift for me to move from the details of one study in Guatemala to really thinking more globally about how nurses can work in the area of climate change and and climate change communication. So I think that's an important area for us as, as kind of behavioral scientists. So what are you learning in these ways? Do you, do you teach students currently or are you primarily doing your research full time? Well, I, I've been teaching and I taught in the summer a public health course and I do give lectures and different courses on climate change and air pollution, but I would say it's by guest appearance only. I haven't quite gotten to the point here in, in my two years at Emory to really establish things. Although having come from California and the university of California, which, uh, the, um, has a, a carbon neutrality initiative that's UC wide and really is focused a lot on building clinical opportunities and uh, on, on climate change and sustainability. So I kind of came from UC, which had a lot of work, a lot of uh, mobility around climate change. And then I came to Emory and I think it's growing, but uh, we have one or two classes in public health and environmental sciences, but nothing dedicated in nursing. So I've been working on developing a course with some of our nursing faculty here that are very interested in that area and are working in it in research. So I, I do think we, we need to develop stronger nursing curriculum and make it part of what all of our students learn. Yeah. And there is movement, of course, across the nation, but it um, oftentimes we just did, you were on those calls about the Nurses Climate Challenge and one of the things that came up is it's not on the NCLEX. And, I know. <laughs> you know, faculty is, feels limited if they're not, I mean, it's not one of the things they have to get through. And so, yes, you're right. We need to transform that somehow. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is we're, you know, looking at the 
competencies that um, we all have to teach to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, social determinants of health made it in there, but not environmental determinants of health. Right. You know, so that's 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 not there. So I think it, it does take a few years to or a decade or so to really kind of integrate it in. But um, unfortunately, there are many things that people add on and it, it makes it harder to, to wiggle your, your interest into it. But I do think we, you know, environmental health is a nursing issue and we just need to really keep pushing. Yeah, well, here, here. Though, though I, I recognize in a four-year program, it's an incredible amount of information. I, I was hearing recently that it's, Nursing, undergraduate nursing is considered the most difficult undergraduate degree you can get these days. Wow. And I think about all that has to happen in that period from taking someone more or less out of high school to being a functional professional. It's in such a field that that demands emotional intelligence and a tremendous amount of knowledge, um, the maturity to handle really challenging situations. And I think how does anybody get through that, especially at that, you know, young age? But, but of course they do. And that speaks to the, you know, the quality of our education, I think. But when you're trying to discuss these rather complex issues, I mean, I mean, environmental health broadly, planetary health, climate change, biodiversity loss, those sorts of things, which do undermine health, that I should say, the problems in those areas do undermine health. It, it, I can understand why, both faculty and students in the pressure of the day would think that is remote. Yes, I totally agree. And I, I think that is what where you know, I took me, you know, a decade as a family nurse practitioner at La Clinica to get up to speed with the contextual situation that our patients are living in. You know, you're when you're in school, you're so busy trying to learn the meds, you know, learn how to catheterize somebody, learn how to start an IV deal with all the monitors and the buzzers and the bells. And so you're, you're just trying to deal with the technology and not kill a patient. You know, that's <laughs> basically where you are. And then when you get comfortable in that practice and you spend some time really, you know, in that privileged space of listening to patients tell you about their lives and you realize, wow, you know, they walk out of this, they're in this clinic for an hour and then they're out the door and the rest of the day is spent in, you know, a neighborhood that doesn't have green spaces in a neighborhood where trucks are idling Mm. and in a home with mold and dirty carpets. And you think that this is kind of where I need to work. I need to take it Mm -hmm. out outside the clinical walls, but that's not, unfortunately, I remember my, my public health and community health course. It was the easy course I slid through and it it didn't really have enough application to see it. It it wasn't quite what I wanted to, to focus on. Mm -hmm. I, I really wanted to, be able to understand medication calculations. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. So time, time will tell. I yeah. think we'll have a lot of people coming back for their masters and their PhDs, and that's where they're, they'll be thinking about it. Yeah, I, I think so too. Are you seeing that yet? Are you seeing people who want to study, um, I guess is a two-part question, who want to study these sort of bigger issues, even though like you said before, you can't do an RCT on these bigger issues. And so we're doing it, studying ourselves inside the box in which we live. And it's a different research question, different research approach. Have you seen some examples of that? Or are you working with um, students who are interested in these ways? 
Yeah, well, I am. I'm lucky to be at Emory. Um, our, we have a great dean who's very in, focused on environmental health and heat stress, Linda McCauley. Um, she's brought in a lot of faculty that are actually looking at farm worker health, and exposure to pesticides, and heat stress. So, as a result of being in a in a great setting with people that are working on uh, disaster preparedness, faculty. Uh, that are looking at uh, children's health in child healthcare centers. I have had students, and a doctoral student in particular, who's looking very interested in climate change and working with uh, immigrant men who had uh, acute kidney disease of unknown origin, and they are from Central America, and they think it might be related to pesticides or heat exposure. So he's a doctoral student looking at the effects of heat exposure and kidney disease. Um, so yes, I think that we are growing our environmental health uh, students and masters in doctoral program, and also um, a lot of global health interest too in, in in Emory at this time. That's great. Which always works for me because I, I consider myself to live at the intersection of nursing and global environmental health. So I, I'm enthusiastic. I haven't, I've only had maybe one or two students who really care about household air pollution in the nursing program. Mm -hmm. But um, I've had many, many students interested in global health and in other, other areas. And do you also teach in the public health school? Not, no, I do not uh, at Rollins. No, mm -hmm. I do have doctoral students uh, that I'm on their committees, but I do not teach there. I, mm -hmm. I try to, I do some teaching here in nursing, but I've only been here two years. So I'm, I'm kind of on the low down so far in terms yeah. of not being called into action quite yet, but I do yeah. teach the, uh, to the PhD students and then to the master's students in nursing. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Something I ask often of the people I interview is something you already alluded to, but just to get your your perspective or theory or thoughts, and it's the question of how would you answer this? Why is environmental health a nursing issue? First and foremost, there nurses are advocates. I mean, that's I think what we're always doing is advocating for our patients, or we should be right. So we should be uh, advocating, and we should be more vocal. And I think, as I, yeah, as I alluded to before, we may only see our patients in the clinical or hospital bed or in a, in a patient waiting room or, you know, may have these kinds of interactions with our patients. But if we can really understand the context of, of the patients, where they live outside the walls at when we're, we're not interacting with them, I think one of the limitations of our nursing curriculum is I, I don't think we pay enough attention to really taking a good environmental and occupational history. I uh, have an example of that. I was working in a clinic and another clinic in Oakland, which um, saw patients that had no health care at all whatsoever. And um, I was seeing a, an elderly woman from Nepal who had, had COPD. She was in her eighties and she just had this chronic, chronic cough and was on a lot of medications. And I looked in her chart and there was nothing that documented her environmental exposures except that she wasn't a smoker. 
And so I said, what did you cook with in Nepal? What, how did, what was, what did you, how did you cook your food? And she says over open fire 60 years. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, that's it. You, you have COPD because you cooked for, you know, 60 years over an open fire before you came to the United States. Mm-hmm. So this idea that we're not thinking long and hard and far enough in the past about our patients and what their past environmental exposures have been, and then certainly how they experience health in their home environment. So I would like to see more advocacy around environmental health in nursing coursework. And more awareness. I mean, most people, without your experience, wouldn't even have a clue that people cook over open fires in their homes around the world. Yeah, and that, and I think that it's really something I've come to see as a as a women's empowerment issue. Mm-hmm. So um, we've done a lot of qualitative work where we ask men and women about cooking over solid fuel stoves, and we've he- heard some things which have been great, where you know the husbands say we don't like our wives to breathe that smoke. Mm-hmm. and we want to do something about it. And we've heard other men say, well, they're used to it. Mm-hmm. They've lived all their lives that way, and so they're, they're strong. They can, they, can, they can put up with it. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things where women are spending many hours a day cooking over their, their stoves, and it limits them from helping out with doing other activities to make money, you know, working outside the home, and so it really is an issue of empowering women. And we think with fast cooking stoves like electricity or gas, where you don't have to get up at 4 a.m., collect the wood, build the fire. We've actually done focus groups where women feel guilty about sleeping in in the morning. They're like, I can't, yo, I'm so lazy. I get to sleep until 6 a.m. I don't have to get up at 4 a.m. And so these kinds of life changing things around something like cooking uh, is something many people aren't aware of, but I think it is. It's an important area to focus on. Mm-hmm. So you were saying that nurses are advocates, and that's one of the reasons why environmental health is a nursing issue. Did you have other thoughts related to that? Well, I think the other thing is our environment is everything, right? And mm-hmm. it's something we might take for granted. Um, we we don't we live in a clean environment here, basically in the, you know, go home to our homes that have a clean environment. We go to our, we don't think about environment when the air quality is good, when the water, when we can drink out of the tap water, we just turn on the tap and drink out of it. Wonderful. You do that in another part of the world, you're going to be violently ill. So this idea that we have benefited from clean air and clean water in the United States, we take it for granted, perhaps, um, and we don't see the importance of it, but when we live in, an, in a time where protections for environmental health are deteriorating, when things are going on in the government to say, well, maybe we don't need to keep the, the smokestacks from polluting in our coal-fired power plants, and maybe we don't need to uh, worry so much about the water quality or you know, the environmental protection agency is not getting, um, is not able to do what it needs to do, that maybe people will see that environmental health is important. Unfortunately, we don't want to see poor environmental health, but I think we may be taking it for granted. So I do think that um, 
that I think it is a nursing issue, but it may be one that's not immediately recognized. Mm-hmm. Well, you could argue that, that nurses as, as advocates also are obligated to advocate at that level in some way. You know, I'm, I'm called back to our social policy statement that says no matter where we practice, we need to have the health of the public in mind, not just mm-hmm. the individual that we're caring for, but the health of the public. Right, right. And one of the things I asked my public health students to do in the course we taught this summer was to write a, an opinion piece, so an op-ed article, and we chose environmental health issues that they could write about. Like, So we had nursing students, these are master's level nursing students, writing opinion pieces, and some of them were so good. I thought, you guys need to get these published mm-hmm. in, in newspapers because we, we actually, as part of our nursing curriculum, should be teaching students to write opinion pieces and get up on their soapbox and state their, you know, argue their point um, around issues in environmental health, health disparities, environmental justice, and all of these things that make you feel good. It makes you feel good when you can articulate solutions to a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you, I'll give you some early breaking news from the chant, which is the, the survey, you know, about the climate health and nursing tool. So we're just analyzing the first year of data uh, from 2019, and nurses are the nurses we surveyed, and this was a voluntary sample. Were very aware of climate change. They're seeing it in their patients and people they know. They're very concerned. They're motivated to act. But when we asked them how often they talk about climate change and health, particularly to different groups, to their family and friends, it was frequent. To their colleagues, it was. Less frequent, but, you know, a few times a year or something. When we when we asked how often they spoke with their elected officials, 63% said never. Yeah. So I, I think this is something that our profession does need to pay a bit more of attention to. I mean, this is one sample, one, one year's worth of information. We're, we'll continue this data collection, of course. But I was kind of stunned by that. Yeah, I mean, it's scary. I mean, it, it's scary to call up your elected official and actually, or face to face with them. I think that we, those are the kinds of um, tools that we need to give to, to young nursing students and some of them not so young, but people Mm -hmm. that are, that this actually does tie into your nursing work. Lisa, I believe you were in Washington DC recently on the fire drill Fridays with Jane Fonda. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, on December 20th, we were in Washington for the, the final fire drill. And um, what was really exciting was Annie pulled together a group of nurses, and we were carefully briefed on this event, which would include, if we voluntarily wanted to, uh, after the fire drill, to participate in a kind of passive resistance at the Senate, the Hart Senate building, and be arrested. And so I'm at the age where I have never been arrested, and I'm halfway through my century on, on this planet, and I decided that my it was my time to be arrested in this uh, struggle to make people aware that climate change is real. And I would have to say it was very, very, um, I did this with complete conviction and knowledge of what was going to happen. The fire drill 
started at the Capitol building in the front. It was bitterly cold. We were listened to people give their talks from Dolores Huerta, who worked with the farm worker movement in the 70s and onward, um, to uh, William Barber, who talked about climate change and its relationship to people of color and, and poor people. Gloria Steinem gave a talk, and then Jane Fonda gave a talk. And it was just really a great rally. And after the rally, the nurses in their white coats and their red berets supplied by Jane Fonda and others, and I think altogether we must have been about maybe 300 people, um, marched to the Senate building. I think about 200 people occupied the Senate building, sat down in the atrium and started singing and chanting. And then the police came one by one and um, gave us three warnings. And then if we still remained seating, we were arrested. And then we were taken to the processing station and spent the next six hours in a refrigerator temperature <laughs> environment and then were released. I think there were about 60 nurses that participated. And I, I made the decision to do that um, because I, I think, you know, as a, as, a, as a person, a single person on my own, it didn't make a difference. But collectively, it got a lot of coverage. Um, there was an article written up in The New Yorker about it. Unfortunately, they didn't mention the nurses. But uh, I think it really was a very moving experience. And I, so far, I don't regret it. <laughs> That, that's just so fabulous. You know, one of the things I heard uh, someone saying early in the uh, organization of the Fire Fridays was that this was uh, particularly important for unlikely protesters. So people who are professionals committed in their lives like yourselves, when people like that come out and protest and are willing to risk arrest, um, then that says something different to the general public when they say, hey, that's that's my nurse. That's someone I know. And so I think that's a really uh, helpful uh, and important piece about this is that it's not just radical people. It is people in everyday life who are really concerned about this problem. I, yeah, I totally agree. I sat next to an accountant mm. um, during our, the six hours or eight hours we were held. And I mean, she's an accountant. And I said, so tell me about it. She said, I've been coming to every single one of these fire drill Fridays. I live in Baltimore and I decided on the last one I would be arrested. And it was just really interesting because she said, I, I take the Fridays off, I come down here, I protest. And she was definitely somebody I, who was not the typical, you know, fired up, I'm ready to get protested, I've been arrested, I've been arrested a hundred times, like the one, the woman who was sitting to the right of me, <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, this is my 56th arrest. <laughs> Um, so there were all kinds of people, but I think that there were a lot of the regular people, the nurses, the accountants, um, the people that just feel that it's time to make a change. And um, it was it was really an amazing experience. That's wonderful. And, and just reflecting back to something you said earlier about it being difficult for nurses, in our case, to take that next step to speaking out. You You took that next step. I did. I did. And I, I thought about it. Um, but yeah, I did. I, it's the first time I've ever been arrested and it was, it felt like it was time and it felt like it was for an important, an important event. And I just hope that the momentum 
builds, you know, the, the next level, right, is to take it to calling up your congressperson and mm-hmm. just being relentless about your your feelings and opinions about the matter mm-hmm. as nurses, as patient advocates, mm-hmm. as people who deal with health, because we all know that climate change is, you know, impacting health as its number one impact. Well, as a, as a nurse, I say, thank you. And as yes. uh, and for your own self, I say, congratulations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. So um, another couple of questions for you. What, um, given your years of research and your experience as an FNP, um, you, you have deep knowledge in the field of nursing and also in environmental health. What is your biggest concern these days about environment and health? Well, my, my biggest concern is really right now is about climate change. And I think that's, you know, that is where, where I'm, I'm kind of, putting my, my feelers out. I, I feel that the biggest concern is not trying to prove the point that climate change does or does not exist, but just to start talking about the future of our children, our grandchildren. Um, there's a quote by Jeffrey Beattie that said that, you know, climate change is like politics and religion and death. They're kind of areas you don't enter into and if you want to be polite. So it just becomes a hard topic that we don't want to discuss because we're afraid that people are not going to be polite about it. And, and so I think that we need to find ways to find polite words to just say that this, this is, we need to seek solutions, you know, and it's not just our, our personal solutions, our personal responsibility but, you know, it's, it's the larger society. It's corporate responsibility and government responsibility. And I think we should just focus it all on children. You know, how can our children flourish and thrive in the future? Because, I mean, that's, that's where I am. I've got two kids, and they're in their 20s, and they're thinking about kids. And, and uh, you know, I think about what would the, the future of my grandchildren look like. And, and I think that's what I kind of talk to my dad about, you know, is these, these grandchildren, these great grandchildren, what kind of world will they live in? And, um, I think he can relate to that because he is a, you know, a big advocate of conserving nature and protecting Mm -hmm. nature. And he was an an early environmentalist, Mm -hmm. but, um, we have this problem that people think that climate change will that dealing with climate change will mean that we will not be able to thrive economically. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we need to disentangle economic progress with climate change controls that, you know, one can't, you know, you can't progress, you can't thrive economically if you're cutting back to try to reduce carbon because uh, we need to reduce carbon. We need to decarbonize. Gosh, my sense is we're, we're only going to um, lose ground economically if we don't. Right. You know, so right. there's, I think yeah. there's good evidence, good, good uh, re, um, writings from economists that explain how we're, we're really going to be in trouble if we don't move away from 
uh, fossil fuels and, and embrace the technologies that are right right now available. It's kind of an amazing time. I know. I mean, I, I, I think that it is actually quite encouraging that there are technologies and things are advancing in terms of solar power, solar panels, battery storage, carbon sequestration. And so I, th I think of, I think it's, these are exciting times. And I think that if our, if our government could say, well, yes, you're right, we, we can actually build the technologies that would help reduce carbon at the rates we need to see to limit temperature rise, you know, as, as, as being done in China and other countries, then, you know, and, and capitalize on it, um, that would be the way to start. Yeah. So just to, as we start to wrap up, I wondered, um, you are an, obviously an energetic and committed uh, professional and a wonderful leader and scientist. Um, how, would, how would you describe that you stay motivated for this work and your commitments in your profession? Well, um, I... I, I think in terms of my household air pollution uh, work, I stay motivated by going to Guatemala and working with the families that are in our study. And I also wanted to say that we have over 20 Guatemalan nurses who are uh, collecting data for us in the field. Mm, cool. So I've really found it super exciting to work with these Guatemalan nurses and to see them grow professionally, um, to, to see them learn about research, all the clinical measures they're conducting, and they are doing such a fabulous job. I stay motivated with the connections I made in Guatemala with nursing schools and with participants and seeing their lives improve. And um, that's my research motivation. I think that my other motivation is the students I work with that are so fantastic and the faculty here at Emory and really trying to create research groups that are thinking about climate and environment, living in a place like Atlanta that's either super, super hot or super cold. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wouldn't say super, super cold like Montana, but it does get pretty cold here in Chile that, you know, we have a lot of people thinking about climate, live, you know, living right next door to CDC, people are thinking about disaster preparedness and um, so I think we're living in a great environment to to work with our nursing faculty, our faculty in, at the Rollins School of Public Health and CDC, and our students to really build a, a, a momentum toward dealing with the in, environmental impacts that are are around us. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like a, a very fertile fertile ground for you there, especially with your leadership and uh, the breadth and depth of the university, as well as, you're right, the Atlanta itself with Georgia Tech nearby also, and I mean, right. there's lots of great stuff going on. Yep, yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to say to nurses who might be interested in environment and health or in research? Um, well, I would say that uh, First of all, there's the Gallup poll that said that nurses are the most respected profession in the United States, I think. That's, they found that nurses as a profession are so highly respected and trusted by the public. And I think that we ought to be proud of that, that actually our patients believe us, the public believes us, we are trusted. I think 
unfortunately, we don't often use our voices or we don't, we let others do the talking. And we really do, as a profession that's predominantly female, really need to get out there and advocate for our patients, for the public, and um, and especially, I think, around uh, building the scientific evidence and then not only proving that it, something exists scientifically, but how do we translate it to the public so they understand what we're saying or to policy makers who are going to make the decisions about it, how, even if that is a scary proposition. I don't think we're scared by translating information to public because that's what we're trained to do. But I think working with policymakers is another leap. So um, that's kind of what I've been working on. I think working more with Annie, working more with the um, academy and trying to write op-eds, although they're sometimes challenging to even find newspapers that publish op-eds anymore, but really trying to educate the public um, about people that are experiencing poor environmental health, primarily uh, people that live in uh, neighborhoods that don't support optimal health and really working with people that are burdened um, with, with these kinds of exposures that affect their, their lives. Yeah, it's so important. Well, Lisa, I've taken a lot of your time already today. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our conversation? Well, I, I would say that um, I really think that I would encourage nurses to be involved with Annie as an organization. I, uh, I signed up for the, the news letter that comes out. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of good webinars that people can listen to. I am going to co-chair the Annie Research Working Group this okay. year with Luz Huntington Moscos. And I think that the Global Nurses Climate Change Committee is also another way to be involved. So I do think that um, Annie is a way to get involved in environmental health and nursing. And I don't, I don't, I think I've probably talked myself out at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so appreciate you taking the time. It's really interesting to hear about your work and your perspective and your evolution uh, through your career. And um, I look forward to uh, hearing more about the results of your, of your studies and uh, to working with you more in Annie. Yeah. Thank you, Beth. Thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me. You bet. Thanks a lot. to Dr. Lisa Thompson for sharing her experience and wisdom. I came away with a greater appreciation of how Dr. Thompson's clinical nursing experience brings depth and context to her work as an environmental health researcher. As she says, a nursing lens brings a viewpoint of a behavioral scientist as well as a physiological scientist and in her case as an air quality specialist. Also, it was great fun to hear about her arrest during the Fire Drill Friday's protests, bringing more attention to climate change. The nurses came out for this, lending their important voice of reason as everyday Americans speaking out for public health and climate health. Thank you again to Lisa Thompson, and thank you all for listening today. 
This and other episodes of the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast can be found at envirn.org. And please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.